In April of 1847, Brigham Young led the first company of the pioneers out of winter quarters. At the same time, 1,600 miles to the west, the pathetic survivors <clears throat> of the Donner Party straggled down the slopes of the Sierra Nevada mountains into the Sacramento Valley. They had spent the ferocious winter trapped in the snowdrifts <clears throat> below the summit. That any survived the days and weeks and months of starvation, of indescribable suffering, is almost beyond belief. Among them was 15-year-old John Breen. On the night of April the 24th, he walked into Johnson's ranch. Years later, John wrote, <clears throat> it was long after dark when we got to Johnson's ranch, so the first time I saw it was in the morning. The weather was fine, the ground was covered with green grass, the birds were singing from the treetops, and the journey was over. I could scarcely believe that I was alive. The scene that I saw that morning seems to be photographed on my mind. Most of the incidents are gone from memory, but I can always see the camp near Johnson's Ranch. At first, I was puzzled by his statement, most of the incidents are gone from memory. How could long months of incredible suffering and sorrow ever be gone from his mind? How could that dark winter be replaced with one brilliant morning? On further reflection, I decided it was not puzzling at all. I have seen something similar happen to people I have known. I have seen one who has spent a long winter of guilt and spiritual starvation emerge into the morning of forgiveness. When morning came, they learned this. Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I the Lord remember them no more. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not <clears throat> remember thy sins. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquity will I remember no more. When the prophet Alma was young, he spent such a time, racked as he said, with eternal torment, his soul harrowed up to the greatest degree. He even thought, oh, that I could be banished and become extinct, both body and soul. But his mind caught hold of a thought. When he nurtured the thought and acted upon it, the morning of forgiveness came, and he said, I could remember my pains no more, yea, I was harrowed up in the memory of my sins no more, and oh, what joy and what marvelous light I did behold, yea, my soul was filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain.
Letters come from <clears throat> those who have made tragic mistakes. They ask, can I ever be forgiven? The answer is yes. The gospel teaches us that relief from torment and guilt can be earned through repentance. Save for those few who defect to perdition after having known a fullness, there is no habit, no addiction, no rebellion, no transgression, no offense exempted from the promise of complete forgiveness. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That is, Isaiah continued, if ye be willing and obedient. Even that grace of God promised in the scriptures comes only after all we can do. You may tell yourself that your transgressions are not spiritually illegal. That will not work. Neither will rebellion, nor anger, nor joking about them. You cannot do that, and you don't have to do it. There is a way back. It will not help if, out of tender regard for your feelings, I avoid telling you about the hard part. John Breen did not come to that morning at Johnson's Ranch simply by desiring it. He wallowed and clawed his way up over the pass, suffering every step of the way. But once he knew he would survive and the suffering would end, surely he did not complain at the ordeal. And he had help all the way down. He was with rescuers. When an offense is minor, so simple a thing as an apology will satisfy the law. Most mistakes can be settled between us and the Lord and should be done speedily. It requires a confession to Him and whatever obvious repairs need to be made. With sincere repentance as a pattern in our lives, measured by our willingness to confess and forsake them, the Lord has promised that he, we may always retain a remission of our sins. Alma bluntly told his wayward son that repentance could not come unto man except there be a punishment. The punishment may, for the most part, consist of the torment we inflict upon ourselves. Maybe the loss of privilege or progress. We're punished for, by our sins, if not for them. There are some transgressions which require a discipline which will bring about the relief that comes in the morning of forgiveness. If your mistakes have been grievous ones, go to your bishop. Like the rescuers who brought John Breen down from the mountaintops, bishops can guide you through the steps required to obtain forgiveness insofar as the Church is concerned. <clears throat> Each one of us must work out individually forgiveness from the Lord. To earn forgiveness, one must make restitution. That means you give back what you have taken or ease the pain of those you have injured. But sometimes 
You cannot give back what you have taken because you don't have it to give. If you have caused others to suffer unbearably, defile someone's virtue, for example, it is not within your power to give it back. There are times when you cannot mend that which you have broken. Perhaps the offense was long ago or the injured refused your penance. Perhaps the damage was so severe that you cannot fix it, no matter how desperately you want to. Your repentance cannot be accepted unless there is a restitution. If you cannot undo what you have done, you're trapped. It's easy to understand how helpless and hopeless you then feel and why you must want to give up, just as Alma did. The thought that rescued Alma when he acted upon it was this. Restoring what you cannot restore, healing the wound you cannot heal, fixing that which you broke and you cannot fix is the very purpose of the atonement of Christ. When your desire is firm and you're willing to pay, you're willing to pay the uttermost farthing, the law of restitution is suspended. Your obligation is transferred to the Lord. He will settle your accounts. I repeat, save for the exception of the very few who defect to perdition, there is no habit no addiction, no rebellion, no transgression, no apostasy, no crime, exempted from the promise of complete forgiveness. That is the promise of the atonement of Christ. How all can be repaired, we do not know. It may not all be accomplished in this life. We know from visions and visitations that the servants of the Lord continue the work of redemption beyond the veil. This knowledge should be as comforting to the innocent as it is to the guilty. I'm thinking of parents who suffer unbearably from mistakes of their wayward children and are losing hope. Some members wonder why their priesthood leaders will not accept them just as they are and simply comfort them in what they call pure Christian love. Pure Christian love, the love of Christ, does not presuppose approval of unworthy contact, conduct. Surely the ordinary experiences of parenthood teach that one can be consumed with love for another and yet unable to approve unworthy conduct. We cannot as a church approve unworthy conduct or accept into full fellowship individuals who live or teach standards that are grossly in violation of that which the Lord requires of Latter-day Saints. If we, out of sympathy, should approve unworthy conduct, it might give present comfort to someone but would not ultimately contribute to their happiness. In the most tender of sermons in the Revelation on kindness and long-suffering, on meekness, gentleness, on love unfeigned, the Lord instructs us to reprove betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost and then show forth an increase of love toward him whom thou hast approved. The Lord provides a way to pay our debts. In one sense, we 
ourselves may participate in an atonement when we are willing to restore to others that which we have not taken or heal wounds that we did not inflict or pay a debt that we did not incur, we are emulating his part in the atonement. So many live with accusing guilt when relief is ever at hand. So many are like the immigrant woman who skimped and saved and deprived herself until by selling all of her possessions, she bought a steerage-class ticket to America. She rationed out the meager provisions she was able to bring with her. Even so, they were gone early in the voyage. When others went for their meals, she stayed below deck, determined to suffer it through. Finally, on the last day, she must, she thought, afford one meal to give her strength for the journey yet ahead. When she asked what the meal would cost, she was told that all of the meals had been included in the price of her ticket. That great morning of forgiveness may not come at once. Do not give up if at first you fail. Often the most difficult part of repentance is to forgive yourself. Discouragement is part of that test. Do not give up. That brilliant morning will come. Then the peace of God, which surpasseth understanding, comes into your life once again. Then you, like him, will remember your sins no more. How will you know? You will know. Some years ago, I was in Washington, D.C. with President Harold B. Lee. Early one morning, he called me to come into his hotel room. He was sitting in a robe, reading gospel doctrine by President Joseph F. Smith. And he said, listen to this. Jesus had not finished his work when his body was slain, neither did he finish it after the resurrection from the dead. Although he had accomplished the purpose for which he came to the earth, he had not fulfilled all his work. And when will he? Not until he has redeemed and saved every son and daughter of our father Adam that have been or ever will be born upon this earth to the end of time, save for the sons of perdition. That is his mission. We will not finish our work until we have saved ourselves, and then on until we shall have saved all depending upon us. For we are to become saviors on Mount Zion as well as Christ. We are called to this mission. There never was a time the prophet Joseph Smith taught, when the spirit is too old to approach God, all are within the reach of pardoning mercy who have not committed the unpardonable sin. And so we pray and we fast and we plead and we implore. We love those who wander and we never give up hope. I bear witness of Christ and of the power of his atonement. 
And I know <clears throat> that his anger is kindleth against the wicked. They repent, and in a moment it is turned away, and they are in his favor, and he giveth them life. Therefore, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The Book of Mormon contains the account of a man named Nehor. It's easy to understand why Mormon, in abridging a thousand years of Nephite records, thought it important to include something about this man and the enduring influence of his doctrine. Mormon was seeking to warn us, knowing that this philosophy would surface again in our day. Nehor appeared on the scene about 90 years before the birth of Christ. He taught that all mankind should be saved at the last day, for the Lord had created all men and had also redeemed all men, and in the end all men should have eternal life. About 15 years later, Korihor came among the Nephites, preaching and amplifying the doctrine of Nehor. The Book of Mormon records that he was anti-Christ, for he began to preach unto the people against the prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. Korahor's preaching was to the effect that there could be no atonement made for the sins of men, but every man fared in this life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius, and that every man conquered according to his strength, and whatsoever a man did was no crime. These false prophets and their followers did not believe in the repentance of their sins. As in the days of Nehor and Korahor, we live in a time not long before the advent of Jesus Christ, in our case, the time of preparation for His second coming. And similarly, the message of repentance is often not welcomed. Some profess that if there is a God, He makes no real demands upon us. Others maintain that a loving God forgives all sin based on simple confession. Or if there actually is a punishment for sin, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Others, with Korahor, deny the very existence of Christ and any such thing as sin. Their doctrine is that values, standards, and even truth are all relative. Thus, whatever one feels is right for him or her cannot be judged by others to be wrong or sinful. On the surface, such philosophies seem appealing because they give us license to indulge any appetite or desire without concern for consequences. By using the teachings of Nehor and Korahor, we can rationalize and justify anything. When prophets come crying repentance, it throws cold water on the party. But in reality, the prophetic call should be received with joy. Without repentance, there is no real progress or improvement in life. Pretending there is no sin does not lessen its burden and pain. Suffering for sin does not by itself change anything for the better. Only repentance leads to the sunlit uplands of a better life. 
And of course, only through repentance do we gain access to the atoning grace of Jesus Christ and salvation. Repentance is a divine gift, and there should be a smile on our faces when we speak of it. See, I'm smiling. <laughs> it points us to freedom and confidence and peace. Rather than interrupting the celebration, the gift of repentance is the cause for true celebration. Repentance exists as an option only because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. It is His infinite sacrifice that bringeth about means unto men that they may have faith unto repentance. Repentance is the necessary condition, and the grace of Christ is the power by which mercy can satisfy the demands of justice. Our witness is this. We know that justification, or forgiveness of sins, through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. And we know also that sanctification, or purification from the effects of sin, through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true to all those who love and serve God with all their mights, minds, and strength. Repentance is an expansive subject, but today I'd like to mention just five aspects of this fundamental gospel principle that I hope will be helpful. First, the invitation to repent is an expression of love. When the Savior began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it was a message of love, inviting all who would to qualify to join Him and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life itself in the world to come. If we do not invite others to change or if we do not demand repentance of ourselves, we fail in a fundamental duty we owe to one another and to ourselves. A permissive parent, an indulgent friend, a fearful church leader are in reality more concerned about themselves than the welfare and happiness of those they could help. Yes, the call to repentance is at times regarded as intolerant or offensive and may even be resented. But guided by the Spirit, it is in reality an act of genuine caring. Second. Repentance means striving to change. It would mock the Savior's suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross for us to expect that He should transform us into angelic beings with no real effort on our part. Rather, we seek His grace to complement and reward our most diligent efforts. Perhaps as much as for mercy, we should pray for time and opportunity to work and strive and overcome. Surely the Lord smiles upon one who desires to come to judgment worthily, who resolutely labors day by day to replace weakness with strength. Real repentance, real change may require repeated attempts, but there is something refining and holy in such striving. Divine forgiveness and healing flow quite naturally to such a soul. For indeed, virtue loveth virtue, light cleaveth unto light, and mercy hath compassion on mercy, and claimeth her own. With repentance we can steadily improve in our capacity to live the celestial law. 
For we recognize that he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. Third, repentance means not only abandoning sin but committing to obedience. The Bible Dictionary states, Repentance comes to mean a turning of the heart and will to God, as well as a renunciation of sin, to which we are naturally inclined. One of several examples of this teaching from the Book of Mormon is found in the words of Alma to one of his sons. Therefore I command you, my son, in the fear of God, that ye refrain from your iniquities, that ye turn to the Lord with all your mind, might, and strength. For our turning to the Lord to be complete, it must include nothing less than a covenant of obedience to Him. We often speak of this covenant as the baptismal covenant, since it is witnessed by being baptized in water. The Savior's own baptism, providing the example, confirmed His covenant of obedience to the Father. But notwithstanding He being holy, he showeth unto the children of men that according to the flesh he humbleth himself before the Father, and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. Without this covenant, repentance remains incomplete and the remission of sins unattained. In the memorable expression of Professor Noel Reynolds, the choice to repent is a choice to burn bridges in every direction, having determined to follow forever only one way, the one path that leads to eternal life. Fourth, repentance requires a seriousness of purpose and a willingness to persevere even through pain. Attempts to create a list of specific steps of repentance may be helpful to some. But it may also lead to a mechanical check-off-the-boxes approach with no real feeling or change. True repentance is not superficial. The Lord gives two overarching requirements. By this ye may know if a man repenteth of his sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Confessing and forsaking are powerful concepts. They are much more than a casual, I admit it, I'm sorry. It's a deep, sometimes agonizing acknowledgment of error and offense to God and man. Sorrow and regret and bitter tears often accompany one's confession, especially when his or her actions have been the cause of pain to someone or, worse, have led another into sin. It is this deep distress, this view of things as they really are, that leads one, as Alma, to cry out, O Jesus, Thou Son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. With faith in the merciful Redeemer and His power, potential despair turns to hope. One's very heart and desires change, and the once appealing sin becomes increasingly abhorrent. A resolve to abandon and forsake the sin and to repair as fully as one possibly can the damage he or she has caused now forms in that new heart. This resolve soon matures into a covenant of obedience to God, and with that covenant in place, the Holy Ghost, the divine messenger of grace, 
will bring relief and forgiveness. One is moved to declare again with Alma, And oh, what joy and what marvelous light I do behold! Yea, my soul is filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. Any pain entailed in repentance will always be far less than the suffering required to satisfy justice for unresolved transgression. The Savior spoke little about what He endured to satisfy the demands of justice and atone for our sins, but He did make this revealing statement, Behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup. Fifth, whatever the cost of repentance, it is swallowed up in the joy of forgiveness. In a general conference address entitled The Brilliant Morning of Forgiveness, President Boyd K. Packer provided this analogy. In April of 1847, Brigham Young led the first company of pioneers out of winter quarters. At that same time, 1,600 miles to the west, the pathetic survivors of the Donner Party straggled down the slopes of the Sierra Nevada mountains into the Sacramento Valley. They had spent the ferocious winter trapped in the snowdrifts below the summit. That any survived the days and weeks and months of starvation and indescribable suffering is almost beyond belief. Among them was 15-year-old John Breen. On the night of April 24, he walked into Johnson's ranch. Years later, John wrote, It was long after dark when we got to Johnson's ranch, so the first time I saw it was early in the morning. The weather was fine. The ground was covered with green grass. The birds were singing from the tops of the trees, and the journey was over. I could scarcely believe that I was alive. The scene that I saw that morning seems to be photographed on my mind. Most of the incidents are gone from memory, but I can always see the camp near Johnson's ranch. Said President Packer, at first I was very puzzled by his statement that most of the incidents are gone from memory. How could long months of incredible suffering and sorrow ever be gone from his mind? How could that brutal dark winter be replaced with one brilliant morning? On further reflection, I decided it was not puzzling at all. I have seen something similar happen to people I have known. I have seen some who have spent a long winter of guilt and spiritual starvation emerge into the morning of forgiveness. When morning came, they learned this, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. I gratefully acknowledge and testify that the incomprehensible suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord bringeth to pass the condition of repentance. The divine gift of repentance is the key to happiness here and hereafter. In the Savior's words and in deep humility and love, I invite all to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I know that in accepting this invitation, you will find joy both now and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Rising.